0: Welcome to my Love Life Podcast, episode number 55, How Happiness Can Literally Save Your Life. It's August 19th, 2022. I'm your host, Lisa A. Lundy, author, blogger, YouTuber, motivational speaker, and podcaster. I'm also a member of the Newsweek Expert Forum. What I do is I help people be happy, healthy, and well-loved, even when life is extremely difficult. As my disclaimer, this podcast does not constitute medical or therapy advice in any way, and my music is by Howie Moskowitz. Happiness can literally save your life. Wow, that's a powerful statement. I'm well aware, and I'm letting you know right out of the gates that this is my assertion and this is my position. And in today's podcast, I am going to give you the very real science that supports my position or my assertion. So, um... I'm going to deviate a little bit in this podcast from my typical design because I really want you to understand the science behind my assertion, of course, because that's important. And because I want you to understand the science, I am going to be reading some statements or sentences from the research and citing the sources so that A, when this podcast is transcribed onto my website in writing, the citations will be there and because I think it's important for you to know what the citations are and because it's the proper thing to do. Anytime you use someone's research, it's the the moral, legal, and right thing to do to cite the the, uh, source of the research. Now, uh, and I'm going to get into quite a bit here, uh, is the scientific community ready to say and make the statement, happiness can literally save your night life? Well, not exactly. They're not exactly there. Will they ever get there? Well, possibly, maybe, who knows. But once you hear the science and the statements I'm going to read, you can come to your own conclusion about the logic to this, about the rationality of it, and all of that and it's important that you get the actual science and not like my adulterated view or my diluted view it's really important so i am going to be reading some science to you so you understand and by the way this to me is wildly exciting when you hear the science that supports how happiness can literally save your life so And I'm also including, I'm also, my other secondary reason for including, uh, the citations and reading some of the research is because what I know is that a huge percentage of people are never going to go do their own research. They're not going to fact check me and that's fine. You don't need to fact check me because I fact check myself and then I fact check myself again because I like to be right. I mean, I don't have to be right. I make all kinds of mistakes. I'm I'm wrong often enough. Uh, I don't really care about being right or wrong. Um, but I do like to be right. I do like to be correct. So it, so I do my due diligence. Anyway, so let's dive in. So what am I going to cover today in this podcast? Well, I'm going to start with a little primer on science, because if you are going to go do your own research or for whatever reason, there's some, some things I really have to say about that that I think will be important. I'm going to talk about psychoneuroimmunology science. The science behind the plasticity of the brain, neuroplasticity of the brain, the self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm going to give you the highlights on the benefits of happiness. I'm going to summarize the science and what it means. I'm going to give a mention to the Crash Course in Happiness. It's a podcast series. I'm going to give you some steps to get on the road to happiness, some takeaways and a call to action. Now, if you happen to be new to my podcasts or my content, you can visit my website, at www.lisaalundy.com, and where I ho- where I hope you'll enter my current giveaway, which is aptly titled, Look, Look, I Want a Book. <laughs> I know, that just makes me laugh. Um, apparently, I love giveaways, and so I continue to do them because they're fun, and I like to do things that are fun. So go to my website, and you can enter my, uh, it's my self-help empowerment book. All right. Uh, now, my disclaimer is very important. Next, which is that I am not a licensed healthcare professional, therapist, or in the medical field in any capacity. And you are or should only get your medical or therapy advice from a licensed healthcare provider, of which I am not. So we're all clear. So get your medical or therapy advice from a licensed provider. I'm not that. Now, if you happen to be thinking of harming yourself or you happen to be feeling like life is hopeless or you're suicidal, what I'm asking you, and I'm, I am beg you to do it too, is to, to get on the phone and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. I'm asking you to tell someone. I'm asking you to talk about it. I I would certainly encourage you to post it on social media if that's the avenue that would work best for you or if that's the only avenue you have. Just ask for help because I promise you that people will help you. They will help you. It might not be the people you want to help you or you expect, but there is help available. Now, the next piece uh, is what I'm calling a primer on science and this is very important because science can be a little tricky and if you happen to be a lay person like myself then there's some things that would be helpful for you to know so I am a lay person I don't have a science degree and I don't have any particular training in science although I have a couple decades (laughs) of using the science and research to produce amazing amazing results so Uh, My earliest science allowed me to save my uterus, which was deemed not savable, which allowed me to have three children later, naturally, without reproductive technology. So, of course, that would make me a diehard fan of of science. And the second thing that science and research helped me do was to save the life of someone that I love, which is amazing. And um, I didn't really understand the gravity of their health. Well, I understood the gravity of their health situation, but I didn't really think some of the things that the physicians, multiple physicians were telling me were true until this person's health history was presented at an international conference for being the only known person to have survived. And after I found out that, I thought, hmm, yeah, they probably were telling me the truth that people don't survive that. Anyway, so science, in my view, can be wildly helpful. I mean, I just gave you two compelling examples. Science can change your life, and science can change your life. And that's my experience. However, that being said, there are, you know, what you want to be able to consider is, you know, what is the science and what is the valid science? And I'm talking about this because... (laughs) um, someone recently asked me about a term which happens to be, um, the imposter syndrome. And I thought, hmm, I haven't heard of that before. Hmm. I should go look that up. I mean, I did get a sense from them of what they were talking about. So I want to highlight, we're going to use the imposter syndrome to kind of highlight the, the, Pitfalls and some things about science, which are really, in my opinion, extremely important. So let's look at um, the imposter syndrome. So, if you and you know, if you use PubMed, which is my search tool for science, because that's where the research articles and studies and whatnot is housed. It's the U.S. government-sanctioned and approved warehouse for the science and research. Now, if you go on the PubMed site and you do a search for low self-esteem, you'll get roughly, or at least when I did it, 17,422 search results. If you look up depression as a keyword, you will come up with 583,704 results. Now, psychoneuroimmunology, that term yields 2,968 neuroplasticity 67350 happiness just happiness is 21490 and angiogenesis is 133299 now now just look, we're going to we're comp- comparing and contrasting so you get a sense of this so if we look at some fairly new science we're going to look at three fields of science that are fairly new And these are from the 1990s. So anything, any science from the 1990s, I hate to break it to you, it's pretty new. might not seem new to you, but science has a whole process. And so anything from the 1990s, in my view, in my opinion, is fairly new. So one term I looked up is adverse childhood experiences. That's actually from 1995. That's a CDC and Kaiser Permanente Kaiser Permanente um, Healthcare Center study. And that, Adverse childhood experiences, that has 5,801, which is pretty, like, pretty high for something fairly new. Post-traumatic growth, uh, it has 2,522, and emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, which really kind of started out and really blossoms, really started to take off in the early 1990s or in the 1990s has 105,071 search results. So those are fairly new in terms of science. Now, when I googled the imposter syndrome, which is purported to have originated in 1978, so we're not talking about the 1990s, we're talking about the late 70s. Imposter syndrome had 113 PubMed search results, an imposter phenomenon, another terminology had hundred and forty-five. So that's a big contrast, you know, looking at you know post-traumatic growth as a new relatively new science still had two thousand five hundred and twenty-two. So I did a little bit more digging to say, hmm, what's what's the reason behind why there are so few search results and, and references in PubMed for imposter syndrome or imposter phenomena, And I found a research article that talked about the fact that the studies really weren't replicate. They couldn't be replicated, or there were issues within the research that they didn't meet the gold standard for research because there, there are well-established guidelines and benchmarks for science, research, and studies. And if you don't meet them, then, you know. So, So my point is... That science and research, while it's a little tricky when you get going, um, is extremely valuable. I mean, allowed me to have children and save the life of someone I love. That's pretty powerful. And yet there are things in medicine and science that are kind of what's referred to as like either pop culture or pop psychology or, you know, kind of faddish. And It's important to me that you know that I don't do fringe science. I I don't do I want things that are well proven, well established, well known, because that's important to me, because that's how I live my life. Now, going back to the imposter syndrome that was coined by someone and then they made a test and, you know, tried to promote it or did promote it. So if you Google imposter syndrome, you'll find, you know, a number of hits. I don't I don't remember how many. I don't even think I looked at the number. But in medicine in particular, sometimes physicians or researchers will come up with something that they coin as a term or as a science concept that is never ultimately widely adopted. And sometimes it is like Dr. Judah Folkman coined the term angiogenesis. And when he did, people thought he was wacko and angiogenesis is an extremely well accepted scientific concept. It's understood. I mean, we, I'm not saying we've totally understood all the mechanisms, but in the beginning, you know, from his research, he coined the term, stood for it, and then it's widely adopted. I already gave you the number of search engines. So sometimes things are fringe science, and sometimes physicians or researchers will, you know, come up with a treatment or something. They'll give it a name, and then it's never widely adopted. doesn't mean it's not valid, but these are some of the, the tricky aspects of science and research that you need to be Aware of if you're going to go do your own research, and I know a lot of you won't so what I'm just telling you Science can be wildly helpful And you need to be aware of the pitfalls and how to do it. Of course. I've been doing it for a long time I'm actually pretty good at it uh, even though I'm not a scientist so I want to move into uh, Because my whole premise of this podcast how happiness can literally save your life Which is my assertion. It's my position I'm going to support my assertion and my position with hard, cold science. So the first science that supports this is called psychoneuroimmunology. Psychoneuroimmunology is the... um, studies the relationship between uh, your immune system or immunity, the endocrine system, and the central and peripheral nervous systems. So what they're looking at is they're looking at neurotransmitters, hormones, and neuropeptides that have been found to regulate immune cells and then as a result or in turn are capable of communicating with the nervous system nervous tissue through the secretion of a wide variety of cytokines so the background for um neuropsycho psychoimmunology is that it's the the fields of psychology neurology and immunology so three fields of science kind of converging if you will on this psychoneuroimmunology. So the first piece I want to mention is from a book written by George F. Solomon. So George F. Solomon, in his book titled The Link Between Religion and Health, Psychoneuroimmunology and the Faith Factor, which was published in New York, 2002. uh, And there's an online edition from Oxford Academic in 2010. um, This is the quote from George Solomon's book. It's chapter two, chapter two, the development and history of psychoimmunology, psychoneuroimmunology. So here's from George Solomon's chapter two in his book. I quote, the history of the development of PNI, by the way, PNI is the acronym or abbreviation for psychoneuroimmunology. So let me start over. Quote, the history of the development of PNI begins several thousand years ago and transcends transcends many cultures. Indeed, long before Robert Adler first coined the term psychoneuroimmunology in 1975, to describe the study of the inner relationships among the nervous, endocrine, and immune systems, ancient mystics, philosophers, and healers mused about the impact of one's mental state on physical health and vice versa. The next piece, so Robert Adler is considered pretty much predominantly from what i read to be the founder of psychoneuroimmunology but i'm going to address that in another piece so this is from um the journal ilar which is the uh it has to do with laboratory animals that's what the journal is but it's ilar journal volume 39 issue 1 1998 pages 27 through 29 by robert adler so there's, this is the quote, I quote, There are now abundant data documenting an association between stressful life experiences and changes to immunologic reactivity. And the next statement from the same source again, in keeping with the reciprocal nature of the relationship between neural and endocrine and immune responses, there are data indicating that immune status influences behavior, end quote. My next piece, so I hope you're really starting to take this in. First of all, we've got George Solomon talking about this is thousands of years old that you know mystics, philosophers, and healers have been musing about your mental state impacting your physical health and vice versa. And then we've got Robert Adler talking about the association between stressful life experiences and changes to the immunologic reactivity, as well as this reciprocal nature. So it goes back and forth or it goes both ways, and the immune system influencing behavior. It's very important. So, my next thing that I'm going to quote to you is from a, psycho, a study called Psychoneuroimmunology development developments in stress research. Now this is by uh, Rainer Straub and Maurizio Kudlow I'm seeing if the date is here. I don't have the date but that's the that's the citation. If you just google psychoneuroimmunology developments in stress research you'll find the study right away so this is a quote from their article quote the brain can interfere with the immune system where chronic psychological stress inhibits many functions of the immune system on the other hand chronic peripheral peripheral inflammation whether mild during the aging and psychological stress or severe chronic inflammatory diseases, clearly interferes with brain function, leading to disease squalor like fatigue, but also to overt psychiatric illness. Continuing, this is still a quote from them, in recent years, it has been observed that psychological stress can be disease permissive, as in chronic inflammatory diseases, cancer, cardiovascular diseases, acute and chronic viral infections, sepsis, asthma, and others. So before we move on to the next one, and again this is from Psychoneuroimmunology de- developments in stress: Rainer Straub and Maurizio Cutolo. The brain can interfere with your immune system. There, that's the first sentence, part of the first sentence I started to re- read to you. So the brain, your brain, can interfere with your immune system, and you know, leading to disease and psychiatric illness. But also that statement, I'm going to read it again. This is a direct quote because I really I really want you to let this wash over you and take in the significance of what I'm saying. I'm actually not saying it. I'm just reading it from the research quote. In recent years, it has been observed that psychological stress can be disease permissive as in chronic inflammatory diseases. Cancer, cardiovascular diseases, acute and, vi- and acute and chronic viral infections, sepsis, asthma, and others. End quote. Next, we're going to talk. I'm uh, going to give you a little bit of research from George M. Slavich, S-L-A-V-I-C-H, in his book, The Psychoneuroimmunology of Stress and Mental Health. Which is an Ox. You can find Oxford handbooks online. So that again is Psychoneuroimmunology of Stress and Mental Health by George M. Slavich. And this is. I'm just going to read this because I really, really want you to get the direct statements of these scientists. Psycholo- quote, Psychological stress is a key factor that can induce and sustain inflammatory activity and I or psychological psychoneuroimmunology has yielded numerous discoveries that have helped to greatly clarify how social, psychological, and behavioral factors influence the activity of the immune system, how the immune system affects cognition, emotion, neural processes and behavior and how these bi-directional interactions shape risk for a variety of mental and physical health problems including anxiety disorders, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, cardiovascular disease, chronic pain, certain cancers, and neurodegeneration, end quote. Continuing on from the same George M. Slavich Psychoneuroimmunology of Stress and Mental Health Oxford Handbooks, this is another quote, quote, One of the most basic and fundamental cornerstones of PNI involves the discovery that components of the immune system Involved in inflammation are influenced not just by factors such as viruses and bacteria that are present inside the body, but also cues, signals, and events occurring in the external, social, and physical environment, end quote. That last statement that, um, it's not just bacteria and viruses in the body, but also cue signals and events occurring in the external, external social and physical environment. It's from Glazer and Keel, called Glazer, 2005. But you, if you go to his citation, you'll find it because he cites different things. So, that is some of the critical pieces of psychoneuroimmunology. So it's disease. It can be, it can be disease permissive and not just for viruses and bacteria. And it's a reciprocal going both ways relationship and the external social and, you know, events, signals, and clues can have an impact. So I think that's enough on psychoneuroimmunology. If I was talking to people who were diehard researchers, I could go on. But I think that gives you the high points. I think this is so, so amazing and so critical. Next, I want to briefly touch on, so all of these things I talked about are very, very serious <laughs> discoveries in science and very, very critical to my assertion and position. The next piece I want to cover in science is neuroplasticity of the brain. This is not something, it's something well-established in science, but not something that we talk about widely. So neuroplasticity of the brain is basically the capacity of brain cells to change in response to either intrinsic or extrins- extrinsic factors and can have and, and it could be positive or negative at any age across you know your entire lifespan. So neuroplasticity is kind of the umbrella term that refers to your brain's ability to change, adapt, modify both structure and function throughout life in response to experience. So to give you the flavor of the the depth of neuroplasticity, you're going to get some sometimes differing points of view when you look at research. So in one paper, I found that the term neuroplasticity was already used by this Santiago Román Capal, C-A-J-A-L, I'm mispronouncing that, massacring it, I'm sure, uh, who was 1852 to 1934, um, who described non-pathological changes in the structures of adult brains. So he's considered the father of neuroscience, However, if you look at other historical renditions of the history of neuroplasticity, you'll find that William James, who was a psychologist and a philosopher, is kind of attributed or often credited as being the originator of the concept from his 1981 textbook, Principles of Psychology. Now, um, William James linked neuroplasticity with habit formation and here's a quote the phenomena of habit in living beings are due to the plasticity of the organic materials of which their bodies are composed so so we have this kind of um timeline of physicians and scientists and and researchers and um The idea of neuroplasticity is most often attributed to William James, but then there's this Adolf Meyer who came after William James and is given a lot of credit for that. So in this field of neuroplasticity of the brain, what's worth mentioning is this woman by the name of Marian Diamond who is considered the mother of neuroplasticity. So we can have fathers and so, fathers of neuroplasticity and mothers. So uh, Marion Diamond's work influenced a paradigm shift for scientists when she was the first to prove that the brain shrinks with impoverishment and grows in an enriched environment at any age. So one of the things that Marion Diamond did was she... Um, took rats and she had her lab workers hold and talk to the rats, which they reference in the research as TLC or tender loving care. Now the surprise is that the TLC, the tender loving care of the rats, just taking them out and, you know, talking to them and holding them, resulted in a 50% increase in their longevity while maintaining plastic gains. So that's the equivalent of 90 years in human years. So uh, Diamond asserted that these gains in the brain, the plasticity, could be enjoyed by humans at any age. And she identified the areas of, for a healthy brain to be newness, challenge, exercise, diet, and love. And I want to read a quote from the science um, that she's attributed to creating. Quote, perhaps love is one of the most valuable, intentional, emotional experiences humans can produce to drive brain plasticity in a positive direction. It is significant that the only change in in experimental paradigm in the Diamond Research Lab was the addition of TLC in holding and talking with the rats, and that this TLC resulted in continued production of neuroplastic gains through a 50% increase in lifespan equivalent to human of 90 years. So, and you could look at Diamond et al. from 1984, um, Diamond et al. 1971. Um, out. So there's plenty of research if you look up Marion Diamond. But I want to just read that last paragraph again and just listen to this. I quote, Perhaps love is one of the most valuable intentional emotional experiences humans can produce to drive brain plasticity in a positive direction Oh, in there that's that won't with the whole thing but i think you get the idea that your brain can change and your brain is not stuck to the pattern and in the lab just providing love and talking and care to the rats increase their lifespan by 50 percent. All right, so that's just a snippet on the science of neuroplasticity. That is like really fascinating to me, but it supports my assertion that happiness can save your life. A little TLC had the rats live 50% longer. That's the only change they made in the Diamond Laboratory with Marion Diamond and the rats. All right, so the next thing, piece, little piece of science I want to talk about is what's called the self-fulfilling pros- prophecy, which is a psychology concept. It's actually a major theme in social psychology, which holds that perception can influence reality. Now, I don't want to get into a lot about the self-fulfilling prophecy because this is an old concept and well documented that if you hold a positive or could be negative uh, view that subconsciously or unconsciously your behavior is going to line up to have your idea come true and they talk about this being the self-fulfilling prophecy that being in a positive way we have a positive idea a positive intention a positive goal and then your your behavior lines up to support that and there's also the self-defeating prophecy where you have a negative view I'll never get the job I never win I won't get a girl or get a guy or get a great job whatever and then subconsciously and unconsciously your behaviors line up to make that true. Now people don't understand subconscious and your subconscious and unconscious mind, which is why I have a whole podcast about that because this is very important science and stuff. So your your underlying thoughts and decisions and uh, emotions laying around in your subconscious unconscious mind drive your life without you knowing it but the self-fulfilling prophecy has a dramatic impact on your life which is all the more reason by the way to understand your core values and your core beliefs because your core values and your core beliefs inform your emotions inform your decisions inform your choices inform your behavior and these are all things if you're not conscious of your values and beliefs then that's all happening under the radar like you're not aware of that so that's another piece that I'm going to put all together so before we uh, kind of summarize the science for you I want to give you the highlights on what we know about the the benefits of happiness because the scientific benefits because happiness has actually been researched over many decades I think I might have mentioned earlier that PubMed has or maybe I didn't, 21,498 search results on the keyword of happiness. So there's a good amount of research. And one of the things that is, is pretty clear and established is the, is the health benefits. So some time ago, quite a while ago, I called the research to look at what are the benefits of happiness. And interestingly enough, I've done this for many different topics, and it's kind of a little disappointing (laughs) to me that I frequently don't find a good all-in-one comprehensive list. And I think the the first time I bumped up against this was years ago. I was creating a a list of kind of signs or symptoms of low self-esteem, which is predominant. I mean, it's like 85% of the world has low self-esteem, but I would find a, a source that cited, oh, there's, there's the top 10 signs of low self-esteem. Another one was eight, another one was five, another one was whatever, and none of them matched up. They, they weren't the same. I'm like, hmm. So this is a list of benefits from the research from all kinds of sources, because I couldn't find one really good source that listed everything. All right, so number one, happiness feels great. Well, that's kind of a duh, we know that. Happiness is actually good for your heart. In other words, we know scientifically it's protective for your heart. Happiness helps build your immune system. Happiness helps you combat stress more effectively. Happy people have less aches and pains. Happiness helps combat disease and disability. It can lifen your life lengthen your lifespan by up to 10 years. What we know from the research is happy people are less likely to get sick. Happy people have more friends, are more successful. Being happy makes life easier. Happy people have more rich and meaningful conversations. Happy people smile more, which according to the research makes them perceived as more generous trustworthy, and extroverted. Happy people exercise more and eat better, according to the research, are more productive, more creative, earn more, are more satisfied with their jobs, are kinder, are more loved, are viewed as better, well-regarded leaders. Happy parents engage in more positive parental behaviors, That also happens to influence positive outcomes in their children, like in terms of the child's motivation, achievement, and peer relationships. And lastly, happiness is a sexy and attractive quality. So that's kind of pulling all different sources to come up with one master list. But wouldn't you love to have those benefits? Well, yes, you would. And isn't it interesting that we know scientifically that happiness is protective for your heart and provides, you know, cor- uh, car- cardiac benefits. So you can have those benefits. And this is where we're going to end up eventually. So I want to kind of pull together the just a couple aspects of the science that I just talked about. So if we look at psychoneuroimmunology, what we know from that is that your thoughts, behaviors, and and emotions impact your neurons and your immune system, which can be permissive for diseases and chronic health problems, including viruses and sepsis, cancers, etc. So something that can be permissive Something else could be protective. So, logically, you know, if we know, we know from the science that certain thoughts, behaviors, and emotions impact your neurons and your immune system, which can be permissive for diseases, including sepsis, virus, cancers, etc., then logically, something could be uh, protective, right? That's just logic. If something can be permissive, we can be protective. Now, from neuroplasticity of the brain, I'm going to add that one sentence. Perhaps love is one of the most valuable, intentional, emotional experiences humans can produce to drive brain plasticity in a positive direction. Because the rats only got a little TLC and their lifespan increased by 50%. So, when we add in now the self fulfilling prophecy, you know, it's central to this whole uh, assertion I'm making because it changes perceptions and changes your reality, it changes what happens. So, to kind of wrap, summarize all of this, your thoughts, your emotions and your behaviors as well as clues signals and events incurring in the external social and physical environment have the ability to impact your health that's directly from the research um, and it is the mind-body connection that George F Solomon's book that I previously stated you know has pointed to how many thousands of years people have been musing about this and talking about this so the research on happiness specifically separate from neuropsychoimmunology or plasticity neuroplasticity is compelling about the positive impacts on health that happiness has not just your physical health but your emotional health so I'm basing my conclusion that happiness could literally save your life based on psychoneuroimmunology, neuroplasticity of the brain, the science that supports the impact of happiness, and the self-fulfilling prophecy. So those are the pieces that in my humble opinion, completely support the position that i'm taking that i've taken <laughs> that i've taken my whole life actually that happiness can literally save your life because it literally can you know improve your health and you know blah 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 There you have it. That's my summary. That's my position. Now, just because this is about how happiness can literally save your life, I want you to know that I have a crash course in happiness. Of course, it's free. That's three podcasts, part one, part two, part three, and a crash course in happiness that highlights the elements, kind of the structural pieces of happiness, because happiness is not... simple matter of well I'm just positive thinking no that is total BS positive thinking is valuable and I'm not dismissing or just demeaning in any way the value of positive thinking but if you think that's all you need to be happy in life I am here to tell you I disagree You can have that view. We don't have to agree, but I'm talking about I'm a happiness expert and there's a lot of things involved in happiness. If you want to be happy to the level where, you know, you are resilient in the face of multiple life challenges happening all at once or something really traumatic or a trauma, like I'm talking about the kind of happiness that's sustainable and will last you a lifetime. So those three podcasts, The Crash Course in Happiness, are going to fully support you in getting on the journey, and they're not detailed. This is just kind of where I go through the list of things that, in my opinion, are necessary and critical to have happiness at a sustainable long-term level. So the next piece of this podcast is I'm going to give you a couple quick steps or suggestions to get on the road to happiness because I hope that you know the science that I covered as brief as it was and trust me I could have just gone on and on about the science because it's so amazing and it's so I mean you know, we're talking about a lot of science here that I just tried to condense into like little pieces so you get the kind of oomph of it anyway here's some suggestions so number one Make a resolute, like a a resolute commitment to be all in for happiness. Like be all in, be committed, like move over, either get on the train or get out of my way. I'm going to become happy. I'm going to learn what it takes to be happy. And you, everything starts with the commitment. Everything starts with a commitment. So make a commitment. Number two, and I was talking to somebody last night. It's very interesting. This next suggestion actually came from a woman I was coaching a long time ago. I won't say how long ago, but make a team, get a team together, get a buddy, you know, to go on the journey with you. Because I was actually coaching this woman ages ago, and what I didn't know is after she would get off of our coaching call, she would call her mother, and then she would call her aunt separately. She just because she was so excited. And she would tell them what, because they had kind of said, oh, oh, keep us posted. Like, what, you know, what's your homework or what, what, what are you supposed to do between now and next week? And, and call me next week. I want to know. I want to, and so they were following along, her mother and aunt were following along this journey. And in the end, as a result, the mother, her mother and her aunt like changed their whole lives because she was sharing with them the assignment she had and what she was doing and what we were covering. So the way to make it really fun and enjoyable is to create a team, to get a buddy and take someone with you. Take someone with you. Don't do life alone. I mean, I'm doing life a little bit alone because I'm single. (laughs) And I'm not going to be single forever, people. Someone's coming eventually. I'm not doing anything about it, but someone's going to show up eventually. But, no, I don't do life alone. In fact, I'm just with a whole group of people starting a social outing club just because I'm not a fan of doing life alone. Uh, I mean, you know, you can, but I don't recommend it. My next suggestion is to make the journey fun and playful. I'm a diehard die fan of fun. I'm a diehard fan of playful. Like, okay, sometimes people think I'm like five years old because I really like to have fun and I really like to play. Although I am very serious about goals and whatnot. But you can make anything fun. I mean, I used to make business meetings fun. People would just kind of like marvel at how how the business meetings were so much fun. you You can be productive but make the journey fun with your team so create a name you could create characters you could take you know you could become become your favorite superhero you you know there's all kinds of ways definitely have parties definitely have events definitely do rewards definitely 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 because that'll make it really fun like life is so hard life is just so hard Bring fun into it. Bring play into it. I do actually have a podcast on having more fun and play in your life, and that might be helpful to you. But, like, you know, come up with a name for your team or a name for the Odyssey or the Journey or whatever you're going to call it. Like, just make it fun. I just don't know why you'd want things not to be more fun. I don't know. My next suggestion is having emotions. As a superpower now this is um, the subject of a Newsweek article that I just uh, newsweek.com just published under their expert tab and so if you go to newsweek.com and click on the expert tab you'll find my article about emotions as a superpower so you can start to use your emotions like a superhero But definitely emotional intelligence will change your life and it will absolutely help you be so, so much happier because you have to grow and build skills to get to the point where you have high emotional intelligence. It's not an overnight process. None of this is overnight. Like it's just not overnight, but you could have this amazing journey or odyssey or trip or whatever you want to call it. And Get a team, it can be coworkers, family, friends, neighbors, whatever, like really go wild with it to bring happiness into your life and then watch how it changes. My next suggestion is self-care and self-compassion. Most people, many people are just not really great at taking care of themselves and it's self-compassion. And when you take care of yourself and there's a whole lot involved in self care. Okay. That's not just like get eight hours of sleep. That's no, there's a lot more to self care than just eat right. Get some sleep. Well, I have a whole pod, whole podcast about self care and self compassion because it's not simple, but it, I mean, it's not hard. None of this stuff is hard people like it is not hard. It just takes time and a willingness, but get on the road to having self-care and self-compassion be a part of your life i mean i am a big fan and big proponent of self-care i do it every day i you know i feel great i mean i feel like i have the energy i had when i was like 20 something and um i did do a lot of work on myself though to develop self compassion, which I talk about in that podcast because I was really hard on myself like most everybody else. Not anymore. Um, so get going with self care and self compassion. That's going to help you to on the road to happiness. And lastly, like get therapy if you need therapy. Ask for help if you need help and have no shame or embarrassment. I mean, throughout my life, I've had many major successes and really amazing stuff happen, and there were, and I've also had the an equal, not equal amount, but a lot of very serious traumas and life challenges, and there were times where I asked people for help, and I don't have any shame or embarrassment. Of course, I don't love asking for help; it's not my favorite thing. Okay. <laughs> Probably on the bottom or, or the top of my least favorite things. But I do it because sometimes you need to do that. So here's your takeaways from this podcast it's time to recognize that happiness is too important to your health and your well being to wait for someday, maybe. Because lots of people are just waiting for this to happen or that to happen so they can start to take care of themselves or start to be happy. No. Happiness is too important for you to wait. Number two, it's time to start putting together at least one buddy or a team and make this a fun, amazing, rich journey because you can. You know, or you can do it alone. I mean, you know, it's, it's your life, it's your choice. And take away number three, it's time to start being in action. Action, action, action to develop. New skills, new habits, new practices, you know, and do the work so that you can have happiness all the time or or a predominant amount of the time, even when life is very difficult. What I'm asking you to do as a result of this podcast is to get on the road of growth and development because that's the access to love. It's the access to happiness. It's the access to all the good stuff and it helps you deal with the hard stuff because you don't get away from the hard stuff. The hard stuff is always going to be there, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's time to get on the road growth and development. And number two, it's time to take people with you. Like, what are you going to be selfish and just like grow and develop yourself so you have this amazing life and leave your peeps behind? No, take them with you. And lastly, share this podcast on social media to help other people understand that happiness is too important to wait. That's it for now. <laughs> i'm lisa lundy saying thank you for listening to my love life podcast episode number 55 how happiness can literally save your life i hope you're going to take some actions consider the research and get going on the road for happiness if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe so you get the new ones automatically And I definitely hope you're going to make me happy by entering my Look Look, I Want a Book giveaway on my website, www.lisalendy.com. Take care for now. Hang in there. Love you.